Welcome to Read, I'm Michelle Martin. Today, the true story of one man who has taken on Vladimir Putin. The story of a chain of events that led to Putin's fallout with the West was in part set off by the efforts of my guest today, the American-born British financier and political activist Bill Browder, here to talk about his latest book. Bill is the CEO and co-founder of Hermitage Capital Management, the investment advisor to the Hermitage Fund, which at one time was the largest foreign portfolio investor in Russia. He spent a portion of his career as an investor in Russia and with his associate tax lawyer Sergei Magnitsky discovered corruption amongst Russian oligarchs in the early 2000s and the plot to extort $230 million worth of Russian tax money. As a result of his very public opposition, Browder was expelled from Russia and Magnitsky was imprisoned and eventually killed in detention in a jail in Moscow back in 2009. In 2012, Browder was able to get the Magnitsky Act passed in the US, which is able to freeze the assets of targeted individuals. And despite death threats and retaliation, from Moscow, he's made it his life's mission to wage a war exposing corruption. His book is Freezing Order. It's explosive and reveals astonishing details in a page-turner of an expose. Bill Browder, it's such a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me on. So you've said that you hope that your friend and tax lawyer who was killed as proxy for you, Sergei Magnitsky's death, becomes a meaningful legacy that saves life. Your first book, Red Notice, is about the investigation into what happened to the $230 million that he was killed over. How does this book continue your mission? Well, we wanted to know then who who got that $230 million, where it went in the world, and to make sure that the people who received that money couldn't enjoy it, that the money was uh, frozen and taken away from them. And um, and so the, the story of the second book is about this 10-year-long investigation and to see who got the money. And, and we discovered who got the money. And um, uh, no surprise that some of the tax officials who were involved and some of the police officers involved got some of the money. But was, what was surprising was that um, Vladimir Putin received some of the money. And we were able to prove that from documents uh, revealed through the Panama Papers. And the fact that Putin got the money um, explained so much about why he hated this case so much and why he was ready to effectively ruin his relations with the United States over the Magnitsky uh, murder, um, why he was so ready to um, not throw his own officials under the bus when the, when the Magnitsky Act was being considered. Uh, it explained everything, really. Can you help us understand, I want to pick up on that point, what is the link between your campaign to expose Putin's corruption and Russia's intervention in the 2016 U.S. presidential election? Well, one of the things that, that after the Magnitsky Act was passed in 2012, Vladimir Putin went crazy. He um, literally, he, he, he banned the adoption of Russian orphans by American families um, as one way of retaliating. He wrote down in a, in a, in a um, document, a strategy document, that repealing the Magnitsky Act was his single largest foreign policy priority. And... Um, and he even sent his own emissaries to Trump Tower to try to convince Donald Trump's son before the election that if he was elected to um, get rid of the Magnitsky Act. And so ef effectively, um, he, he, Putin took the view that uh, Donald Trump would be better than Hillary Clinton on this crucial issue for him, which was the 
potential seizure of his, of his property. And, and, um, and he, he weighed in as best as he could to tip, tip the scales towards Donald Trump. Has the world acted a little too late, in your opinion, to stop Putin? Why have you said that the shooting down of the Malaysia Airlines flight over Ukraine back in July 2014 was perhaps a good time to have acted more decisively? Well, we, um, I, I think that we could have acted more decisively then, for sure. I mean, this was an act of, of um, you know, terror. This was a, a, effectively, a, you know, the equivalent uh, for the Dutch people of September 11th in terms of per capita loss of life. Uh, and we did nothing. Um, and, and But frankly, we have done nothing since the very beginning. Putin invaded Georgia, and we did nothing. Putin took Crimea. We did nothing. Putin uh, carpet-bombed civilians in, in Syria. We did nothing. And so he got the impression that we were so scared of him, that, um, that we were so eager to get his oil and his money, that we would do nothing. And I believe that, that if we had done things back then, with the shooting down of, after the shooting down of MH17, after any of these other atrocities, Putin might have had a different calculation about the risk and reward of going into Ukraine. And he might have, maybe, maybe he still would have gone in, or maybe he would have done a referendum instead of a, an invasion. There's all sorts of different things he could have done that would have been a lot less um, terrible than what we're seeing right now. On the point of Ukraine, you said that legacy and recreating the former Soviet Union is not what Putin cares about and that Ukraine is a small taste of what is to come from Putin. Why do you think Putin has invaded Ukraine and what do you see happening next? Well, in my opinion, the invasion of Ukraine is more to do with kleptocracy than it is to do with any sense of national interest or vision that Putin has. He's been a dictator um, and a kleptocrat. He's been around for 22 years. And based on, on my analysis, he's the richest man in the world. And he became rich by stealing an, an unbelievable amount of money from the Russian people. And after a while, the Russian people start getting angry. That's money that should have been spent on, on hospitals and schools and filling potholes in the road. And instead, it's spent on private jets, yachts, and, and uh, villas for Vladimir Putin and the people around him. And so I think that Vladimir Putin was getting to the point where he thought that anything could set the people off, that it was a very brittle situation. And he was terrified that the Russian people would rise up against him. And he did what any good dictator does in a situation like this. Um, he started a war. And I believe the war in Ukraine is just about being at war, rallying the people around him and creating a situation where um, uh, they're not angry with him. They're angry with the foreign enemy. What is the situation like in Russia now, do you think? You, you've said in an interview, all truth has been disconnected from the Russian people. So what hope is there that there will be an uprising from within? Well, I think the uprising from within is only going to happen if Putin decisively loses the war in Ukraine. Um, I, I, you know, the truth of what's happening is so sparse and they've disconnected all Internet and all social media, all, all news sources. And so the average Russian person um, can't really understand what's going on. But it's pretty understandable if, if um, Russia no longer has Crimea, for example. And so if the Ukrainians can beat back the Russian military, if they can uh, defeat them, um, th that's something that the Russian people won't tolerate. They, they like a strong man. They like a winner. They don't like losers and, and somebody who loses a war. The U.S. has a policy to encourage a brain drain of Russia. What do you think is the likely success of this? Well, I think the U.S. policy is basically to weaken Russia in every possible way, to weaken them financially, to weaken them militarily, to weaken them from a technology standpoint. 
And I think the U.S. has a great capacity to do that. I mean, there are there are places in the world that will still support Russia. I think that um, you know China has said that they would support Russia, but I don't think that um, China Russia can go it alone with China and end up being a, a sort of prosperous, comfortable country. I think that that without U.S. technology, the planes can't fly in Russia. Um, without U.S. oil services, the oil oil uh, production will decline. Um, without access to U.S. Um, banking and uh, SWIFT services, they can't transfer money around the world. It becomes a really uh, a very sort of primitive place um, without the U.S. Uh, supporting Russia. The EU has proposed a ban on Russian crude oil to be phased in. Can anything more be done by U.S., Europe or other players uh, in terms of sanctions that haven't been done? Well, every day um, right now, Russia receives a billion dollars every day um, for the sale of oil and gas. The um, embargo of oil will cut out a fifth of that, 200 million a day, which is significant. It's not it's not nothing, but still 800 million a day goes for the sale of gas. And that hasn't been embargoed. That hasn't been stopped. And that will continue to go forward. And that has to ultimately be stopped um, in order for um, uh, the West to really starve Putin of the financial resources he needs to conduct this war. In your opinion, how far will Putin go to stay in power when it comes to nuclear weapons? Well, um, I think he would, he would absolutely use a nuclear weapon if he thought a nuclear weapon could help him stay in power. I mean, I've been thinking about this a lot over the last few weeks, trying to understand how a nuclear weapon could help him. And I, I don't really have an answer. On one hand, if he was to threaten nuclear war, um, to such an extent that, that he was credible, um, he may cause the West to capitulate. But let's say he were to set off a, a nuclear bomb, a tactical nuclear weapon in Ukraine. What does that do? That, that um, you know, there's fallout that would probably come back to Russia. Um, he does, how does he, you know, killing many hundreds of thousands of people uh, might be an act of terrible, unbelievable terror. But what does that do in terms of advancing his military aims? Not clear. And so I think he's really... Um, you know, he, he wants to, to rattle the saber. Uh, 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 he wants to make himself look like a terrible, mean dictator. But it's not clear exactly where the nuclear card would actually come into his strategy if he decided to get so desperate to use it. In your opinion, what needs to be done to stop this war? Um, I think we just have to starve Putin of all financial resources so he can't afford to do it. Who holds his purse strings now, do you think? Well, right now, the, the purse strings, we, we've frozen all of his savings. The, the Central Bank of Russia um, savings have been frozen. The um, oligarchs' money offshore have been frozen. Uh, so all he has now is the income that he gets every day from the sale of oil and gas. And so the key at this point is oil and gas. The oil has been taken care of. Now we all have to focus on the gas. And if we can somehow prevent him from, from uh, selling gas, find, finding a gas supplier um, that's not Russia, in the medium term, that will then bring him finally to his knees. Your 58 bill, you were deported um, to the UK from Russia back in 2005. And the book, in fact, starts with you facing a kidnapping attempt in Spain, one of several on your life. Why do you continue to speak out against Putin? Well, it's um, not just against Putin, it's against his whole regime. And the reason I speak out is because these people killed my lawyer, Sergei Magnitsky. He was Sergei died when he was 37 years old. Um, he left a wife and, and uh, 
two children and and it's my duty to him he was he was killed because he worked for me and if he hadn't he'd still be alive and you know the burden of guilt and the responsibility i feel for his death um drives me every day after i read your book i stayed up all night i had nightmares all night of being hunted and interrogated and that you know, because i stepped into your life for a little bit um and i wonder personally you know, you have a supportive Russian wife, you have children who I understand think that all dads fight Putin. Yes. What do you have to do to survive and thrive when you're under constant death threat? Well, I think there's lots of people under constant death threats in all different parts of the world. I'm not, I'm not unique in this situation. Everybody in Ukraine is under a constant death threat today. You know, you learn how to survive under, under the circumstances. You, um, you figure out what, what your coping mechanisms are. And for me, the coping mechanism is to get justice. I, I feel like, um, uh, I have, a, I have a really um, important mission, which is to make sure that the people who committed this terrible atrocity against somebody who's close to me pay a price. And that drives me. And that drives me more than whatever fear they try to create. And I'm, I won't um, back down. I'm not going to be swayed by their threats. And, and uh, I haven't been. And I will continue to not be. In the first chapter of your book, you describe being kidnapped in Spain and the role that Twitter played. You sent a tweet out, took a photo of your um, the assailants, and you know you sent a tweet out from the back of the car. Given what we know about Twitter being run by Musk, do you think Twitter should remain a public company? Uh, it's not clear to me that that um, uh, being a public company um, has any <laughs> any relevance to to whether Twitter is functional or not. I think the main problem with Twitter. Um, is is that many of the accounts on Twitter are not people. There are just um, propaganda bots from dictatorships and so on. Um, I would imagine that that um, if, an, if a private individual um, who is responsible owned Twitter and wanted to clean it up, um, that would be a, a very welcome uh, change. All this, you know, fake, you know, news bots, you know, stuff that, that that's got to stop. And, and uh, hopefully... Elon Musk is a responsible individual who can who can fix that. And finally, the Magnitsky Act, can you help us understand, is this a key weapon being used to curb the flow of funds of Russian oligarchs? So the Magnitsky Act freezes the assets and bans the visas of people who are involved in kleptocracy and human rights abuse. Many oligarchs are involved in kleptocracy, some in human rights abuse. And the Magnitsky Act basically targets what they covet most, which is their offshore savings. And... Um, Judging by Putin's reaction to the passage of the Magnitsky Act, um, if in the using the analogy of the game Battleship, we got a direct hit. You know, we've, we've hit them really where it counts, and um, uh, it's it's really um, kind of a, I mean, it's so obvious. <laughs> you go after their offshore money, but no one had thought of that until we came up with the Magnitsky Act, and it's really taken the world by storm. There are now 34 countries that have Magnitsky Acts, and and uh, hopefully more in the future. Where do you decide to end this book, Bill? Uh, the book ends uh, in the, with the discovery that the crime that was committed against me and against Sergei Magnitsky, the $230 million crime, was one of one of a thousand, one one thousandth of the amount of money that we could identify was stolen from Russia. And the number was close to $232 billion, not $230 million. And, um, and that explains why Putin and his regime is so, so uh, adamant about not being criticized, not being exposed, and um, and also why they're so scared of their own people. Honored to speak with you. Your book is terrific. He's Bill Browder, and his book is Freezing Order. This is Reed. I'm Michelle Martin.